listening to the Everything You Want to Know About Therapy But We're Too Afraid to Ask podcast with your host, Jessica Strang, and your co-host, Jennifer Trevelli. If you've ever wanted to start therapy but didn't know where to begin, you've come to the right place. In this podcast, we will offer, I don't know, what you call Therapy 101 by interviewing experts in the field and asking them anything and everything you want to know about therapy before you make that first appointment. Asia Brodsky is a licensed clinical social worker, a certified alcohol and drug counselor, as well as a certified sex therapist. She believes that sexuality is a vital part of people's well-being and strives to enhance individuals' emotional and sexual wellness. In the span of her career, Asia has participated in multiple speaking engagements and presentations on topics including sexual trauma, sexual health, and sexuality, and her work studying sexual orientation and LGBT youth has been published in noted journals. Currently, Asia has her own private practice where she helps adolescents, adults, couples, and families engage in the process of self-discovery and connection with others. We are thrilled to have Asia on as our expert guest for this episode. Asia Brodsky, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is very exciting. We're Hi, very Asia. excited to have you as well. Hello. We're very excited. We're very, very excited. This is, I will say to, to you, and I think I just said this before in the pre-show uh, that we had, um, there have been more questions <laughs> for you <laughs> than ever before. And, but we're not going to give away right now what it is, but Jennifer, you take it away uh, where you want to start with today. But it's a very interesting topic. Yes. So as yeah, typically what we start, typically we start with all of our guests and we will typically start with a question of asking kind of, how did you get into the field of psychology? Kind of what, what brought you into the field? What did you study? Um, How did you become interested? Sure. We kind of start at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. So I um, started... You know, I sort of in undergrad um, wanted to wanted to look, you know, I come from a family, a medical family, and I knew I didn't want to do biology, but I wanted to do something that related to biology, but not quite fully. And so I found psychology and I was also doing research at the time for um, a group that focused on HIV identity among gay and bisexual men of color. Um, Very specific. Very specific, yes. And so while doing research throughout all of undergrad, I was doing transcribing of interviews. And in transcribing the interviews, I thought to myself, but what is it like on the other end? What's it like to actually talk to these men who are disclosing these difficulties or going through this stuff? And the person, the researcher at the time said, you know, you can become a psychologist, you can become a social worker. And I also had developed an interest in sexuality from an earlier time, sort of just recognizing um, that sexuality is something that's clearly not talked about. And after Mm -hmm. that, it framed a lot of my experiences to focus in that field. So After graduation, I went to um, graduate school to become a social worker. My internships were in the field of HIV and in the field of sexual trauma. I then went to work um, in the HIV field. I was there for a long time doing both case management and mental health. You know, when I would do 
presentations there. I focused them on sexuality and the impact of HIV on sexuality and sexual functioning. And sort of when I would do private practice work, obviously it sort of grew into, uh, it grew from using all those experiences to put them together and create something that I was very much passionate about. And, and currently, what, what is your position? What do you do for, for work? So I um, have my own part-time practice. It used to be downtown Chicago, Speak Chicago Psychotherapy. It's a completely sexuality-focused practice. Um, and I see individuals, couples. I also see dyads. So I say that because I will sometimes see a mother and son, or I will see parents together. Um, and so individuals, couples, families, and dyads. And then I also work full time, um, for the Jesse Brown VA as the women veteran program manager, and also incorporate sexuality there looking at, um, what we can do for female veterans around sexual functioning, um, pregnant women and how pregnancy affects sexual functioning. Um, but that in that, in that line of work, it's much more administrative and more sort of advocacy based. And in my practice, it's micro level practice. Fascinating. Wow. Um, go ahead, John. No, I was just going to say, I was going to, that it is, it sounds very fascinating that I kind of wanted to, to jump right in and ask if you could talk to us about what exactly sex therapy is and what exactly you do in your practice um, and kind of in that field. Sure. Sure. So sex therapy is a specialized kind of psychotherapy focusing on sexual concerns. Um, generally provided on an outpatient basis. It's not sort of intensive types of treatment. And it's therapy that focuses on sexual needs and desires, functioning and behavior, sexual expression. Um, some people can do sex therapy individually, whether it's because they are not in a relationship or because they're in a relationship and perhaps feel like they're the quote unquote person with the presenting issue. Um, and sometimes it's seen in couples. I tend to believe that sexual issues are couples issues um, it, hmm. and each partner sort of contributes something to the equation. Um, right. It's not just in a vacuum. It's just, it, it, it's definitely exactly. with a couple. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And I also, you know, it's therapy that focuses on the goal of sexual connectedness, intimacy, you know, improving satisfaction. We've, you know, obviously a patient drives what it is that they want to address in treatment, but it's just like for psychotherapy, when you come in with sort of a specific focus in mind, sex therapy is, I have something in the sexual realm that I'd like to address. And there are providers that really specialize in this stuff and have, and have an expertise. And so they seek them out and that's what sex therapy is. So, so what would you consider to be the qualifications that are needed to become a sex therapist? Um, as you're saying, there's providers that, that this is their expertise. What, what would you need to do? To, what are the qualifications? Sure. That's a great question. And partly why it's a great question because, is because we want to protect consumers. So, yes, um, yes. you know, we, uh, <laughs> sex therapy, the title of sex therapist is not regulated and doesn't require any specific license except for in the state of Florida. So clinicians can advertise themselves as sex therapists or sex coaches or sex educators. And so when someone is looking for a sex therapist, you really want them to have formal training. Um, and so the qualifications include first and foremost, like for many other fields, a grant graduate degree in 
is somewhere around the aspect of mental health. So whether it's a psychologist, a marriage and family therapist, social worker counselor, you can even get a human sexuality degree. And then also someone who's got a terminal license, meaning fully licensed versus provisional where they're still working towards something. Mm -hmm. And then certification. So ASEC, the, um, American Associ- the American Association for Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists is sort of the known accreditation body in the United States. Um, and so then you pursue certification to become a sex therapist, and that entails specialized education, whether it's a master's or a doctorate, very specific, very specific sex specific excuse me training and then supervision and clinical hours so it's not just Mm -hmm. being able to get the knowledge um, through education and didactics it's also treating patients receiving supervision from someone who's done this work who's a certified sex therapy supervisor you know who's been in the field for a long time to to get that credential behind your name i will also add that um you know, there are people who are legitimate, if I may say, sex therapists who've been practicing for many, many years who are not ASEC certified. And finding those people sort of comes from being in the field for a long time. But if you see someone who's been practicing 30 some years, chances are they probably meet the criteria of a sex mm-hmm. therapist if this is what they've been doing. But I would stay leery of people who advertise themselves as sex therapists who may um, have taken a course or two and are mm-hmm. advertising themselves this way. You know, so CST, if for people, many people find therapists through psychology today, CST mm-hmm. is, the, um, is the credential that would be behind someone's name that, that identifies someone as a certified sex therapist. Um, and then I would also, you know, sort of look at directories. So ASECT has a directory of providers, STAR, has a directory of providers, stars, the Society for Sex Therapy and Research. Usually people who are members are people who have worked towards certification or are, are already certified. And so that, mm-hmm. that would be where I would lead people um, to find qualified sex therapists. You know, I really appreciate you saying that the, the piece about protecting the consumer right off the bat is because that's one of the main reasons Jennifer and I started this podcast was because there were mm-hmm. so many questions regarding psychology and we, we knew a lot of information, but we, you know, we can't see everybody, you know, and so, yes. um, so we thought, well, if they have questions, if people have questions about, oh, you know, um, therapy, well, we can answer that, but these very specific treatments and the Mm -hmm. modalities, you're Mm -hmm. absolutely right. We need to know, are these people qualified? Mm -hmm. You know, the consumer needs to at least have some help in that, in that direction. I know it's always, it it always lies with the consumer, but ultimately it also lies with us too, to be able to spread this information. And so I really appreciate you saying that Um, because then I guess the other question would be, is what what is sex therapy not because Mm -hmm. I you know I you know Jennifer knows the story but you know I I know people that build themselves as this and it's it seems like very uncomfortable strange things are happening in session Mm -hmm. which I'm not going to get into but um it didn't seem appropriate and I had a hinky about it you know like that little red flag so tell us what it's not yes (laughs) and I I really love this question because I think again it it's worth reiterating, it's worth really highlighting. Um, So sex therapy is not anything outside of traditional talk therapy. So just like in psychotherapy, we protect the integrity of of the patient, we protect the privacy of the patient, and we honor the safety of the patient. The same goes for sex therapy. You know, 
touch is not something that should be happening in therapy. Sexual content is intended to be explored, not displayed, and certainly not abused. Um, you know, so for ASECT, for every pe per person who is a member and anyone who wants to be certified, they sign certain standards. And so you abide by the ethical standards of clinical practice within the organization and also within your line of work. So for me, I happen to be a social worker. So that's abiding by the standards and the code, the NASW code. Um, there are instances where sexual material obviously comes up but what i you know and i've i've done a talk on this and i can talk more about this later if if we wish but sexual material will come up and we're human and we have reactions to those materials and it's okay to acknowledge that sometimes you as a therapist or a patient will experience arousal in therapy or you as a patient or you as a therapist will have a certain reaction to something sexual, but we never act on that impulse. We explore it and understand it and what it means clinically, because um, not only are we working in the betterment of the patient, we also unfortunately have a history in psychotherapy from not too, too long ago. And sometimes painfully still happens today where providers providers take advantage of patients and feel mm -hmm. like they're in the interest of helping them. They cross boundaries. And there has not been a known time where that betters the treatment. It only it only derails it and damages patients' minds. Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, I think it's great that you you brought that up because I feel like for so many of us who don't if we don't have a background in therapy or the therapy process and the therapeutic relationships and the boundaries. But even if we, you know, somebody who's not in the field, oftentimes kind of our perception of what, or their perception of what sex therapy is, maybe from what like we've seen in movies or TV shows where they portray a sex therapist, not in the way that you're describing a sex therapist. So I think it's great to kind of differentiate that for mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, you know, like nowadays there is, um, sexological body workers and their surrogate partners. There are people working to do, um, if I may say, sex therapy-ish work. Mm -hmm. um, but it's but it's not sort of it's it's not what's known as sex therapy, and it's it's hard to differentiate that when you're someone who's just searching for help and not sure where to turn. Why, why do you yeah. think there's so much stigma around, you know, around sex therapy, you know, similar to probably individual therapy or therapy of any kind? Um, why do you think specific to sex therapy, there's, there is a stigma or there's a, you know, just a curiosity or, or just, you know, just a, a really a preconceived notion? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, sex sells and sex is everywhere, except we don't talk about it. You know, and I will. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> I, I will. I will um, tell couples. You know, we we see sex all around us, and we just expect people to know what we want when we actually have no idea. And not only that, but chances are, we're we haven't explored this much in ourselves. And maybe the reason is because we're uncomfortable and we feel significant shame and embarrassment. Um, mm -hmm. There's so many times where I will do an individual assessment and I just 
watch the reaction of a patient and how sheepish they get, how quiet they get when they're trying to describe a sexual experience or what their difficulty is. It's because we're taught that certain things need to not be discussed in public, Mm -hmm. you know, and here we are Mm -hmm. sort of opening the door for you're going to talk to someone about this and you're going to, you know, you're going to be discussing very intimate and very, um, very private, you know, things of significantly private nature that you might be very um, sheepish to, to disclose to yourself, let alone another person. So, so I think discomfort and sort of the idea, the, the false notion that this is private, it shouldn't be discussed, is what contributes to the stigma. I also think, you know, patients and therapists have a hard time admitting their own biases, Mm-hmm. Um, and so a therapist may not feel comfortable disclosing that they're actually uncomfortable with the subject. But as I will tell you from my own experience, um, patients pick up on that, you know, being in a therapist's office and you bring up a sexual thing and you can just see the reaction of the therapist. You, you pick up very quickly. Mm, maybe I shouldn't touch this. But what if it's really bothering you? What if it's an issue you really need exploring? You know, um, so we've got a lot of work to be done, even though I do believe, you know, from so I coordinate the Chicago Sex Therapy Network and the size of our network has grown since we formed in 2012. Um, And I think that's because more and more people are going into this, more and more people recognize we need this. And then I also think about sort of the societal climate with openness and Mm -hmm. sexual diversity and sexual, you know, the continuum of sexual exploration. I think the more that grows, the more the stigma lessens. I really like that. I, I think that you're absolutely right in the sense that, you know, the, the feelings of shame or feelings of being sheepish with your, your therapist, period, of anything that people, you know, don't want to discuss in therapy. And then on top of that, that whole other layer of sex, mm-hmm. when it's not being discussed, or maybe it's also, you know, for a long time, culturally, people didn't talk about it. And you're absolutely right. There has been a significant shift. I mean, I know you know, grade school children that can differentiate between pansexual and yeah. asexual. Yes. And, I, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it's like, is everybody on TikTok talking about this? Like, <laughs> because it's like, I, I certainly didn't, you know, I didn't bring it up. And of course, I don't shy away from that conversation. But it was something that I certainly, as a young person, never, of uh, there, there was no words for that. Of course. There was no words. And I love that there are words. Yes, of course. Well, and it's impressive because we think about our own times. We, we were not having these conversations, let alone knew the difference between certain mm-hmm. terms. Yeah, absolutely not. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what would be some reasons that someone would um, seek out services with you or seek out, look, look for a uh, sex therapist as they're kind of, you know, entering into the process of trying to find a therapist who's a good fit? What might be some reasons to seek out sex therapy? Or what might be a common issue that somebody might be experiencing when they come into therapy with you? Yeah. Um. So, you know, uh, numerous reasons why someone presents to a sex therapist's office. And I think, you know, it depends on the specialization. So for me, one of the things that I, so some of the things that I specialize in are um, sort of sexual function and dysfunction based on sexual response, sexual trauma, and LGBT development. I've got colleagues who specialize in kink and poly relationships. And so the things that you know, we tend to attract the kinds of patients that we specialize in. It just kind of happens. People gravitate mm-hmm. towards, they can pick that up 
on us, you know, whether consciously Mm -hmm. or not. Um, And so I think what someone presents with um, depends on the therapist's niche within the field of sex therapy um, and sort of goes from there. But I, but I would say common issues. So the probably top issue that presents to a sex therapist's office is desire discrepancy. And what I mean by that is that partners are in a relationship and one partner's or maybe multiple partners, sexual interest is higher and or lower in comparison to other partners. Oh, okay. And and this creates challenges for them and sort of how do they navigate that? It's one of the toughest and one of the most common problems presenting to a sex therapist's office. Um, Other things are, you know, lack of intimacy. And when I say intimacy, I don't necessarily mean sexual intercourse. I mean, lack of intimacy in a relationship in addition to sexual intercourse or sexual play or sexual exploration. Pain is common. Um, you know, like I already said in my, in my practice, one of my foci is sexual trauma and the impact on sex. And so, um, you'll see patients that they present with sort of the impact of sexual trauma on sexuality and sexual functioning and how it really, um, does a number on someone's uh, identity. Um, Mm -hmm. so you know, things like that. I also, you know, sometimes I joke, you know, people will call and say they're interested in sex therapy. And after an assessment, you realize we're very, very far from doing sex therapy. And the issues that you have sexually are actually um, either they mimic other issues that need to be addressed, or they're an element of broader issues that really require attention and Mm -hmm. it'll take a lot of work before we get to sort of the nitty-gritty of the sexual stuff so it's almost like they come in and it's just the tip of the iceberg of the problem there's a lot more going on could you walk us through what an initial intake would look like just you know I know that it's 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 very much dependent on the therapist you know where it goes but is there um is there like a standard intake and how this would differ then from regular old individual therapy yeah yeah um I love that I I love what you said um so there is not a standard intake you know and again this is what Mm -hmm. makes things makes things a little bit complicated and I also you know I'm the kind of therapist that I start initially when I was sort of newer in the field, I started following certain assessments, but I veered away from that because I think in the way I practice, so the way I think, the way I conceptualize, and also in the field of sex, I believe that in in an intake session or two, however many it takes to really try and get the, you know, the historical context, I believe that whatever comes out is what someone feels comfortable sharing and what wherever it leads will give me clues into what I should be asking. So, you know, if someone comes in um, with a specific sexual problem, I will tend to ask sort of how long has this been an issue? How damaging is this to you? Or are you feeling okay about it? What is the frequency of the issue? Things like that. Um, when, you know, when there's a sexual concern more specifically, for example, something like premature ejaculation, we can ask, you know, is it general? 
is it something that happens with everyone or is it situational where it happens in certain circumstances or is it lifelong? Has this always happened or is it acquired where over time something became an issue? You know, like this is common with when someone's diagnosed with a medical problem where they were not, something was not an issue before and then it became acquired over time because um, of a certain condition. So it becomes secondary, but but there is not a standard format, you know, there's not a standard okay. assessment. Um, and so I kind of, you know, again, whether it's sex therapy or not, I f- follow the patient, whatever they, whatever they share will give you clues into what needs to be asked. And that's sort of the, the model that I personally happen to follow. I mean, you're really meeting them where they're at. I mean, that's what you're saying. You know what I mean? And so yeah. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the questions that we wanted um, to have you talk about a little bit is if you could talk to us a little bit about what, a, what is a fetish and then maybe the difference between a fetish and a fantasy. Sure. Yeah. So um, a fetish is sort of the organizing one's desire around an object. So whether that object is someone's feet, sort of classically traditional, or that fetish is sort of, and this gets into fantasy too. So well, um, let me specify. So a fetish is sort of an object of desire, and it can be part of fantasy. And then fantasy is sort of the more broader term of what our sexual desires are. And so um, I'm thinking, you know, like, someone might have a domination fantasy, and then Perhaps a fetish is um, being, you know, having a whip and using that whip. But it also doesn't have to, you know, when I say object, object doesn't necessarily have to be an inanimate thing. It can also, object can also stand in for a person. And so Hmm. if, if someone is sort of dominating that in itself, that that person becomes the object of desire and that becomes the fetish itself. So so I guess my, my question would be, do we need to treat them? I mean, like, because if, if that's something that is, um, you know, useful to someone's sexual performance or they're, yes. or they're it's part of their sexual fantasy and it's really something that is, uh, you know, makes them happy, let's put it that way. Of um, course. Why mm-hmm. do they need to be treated? Do you yeah. think? Yeah, well, that's a really, I I love, I love the frame of that, which is, do they need to be treated? And the answer, you know, I want to say no, but I will say it depends. And the reason I'll say it depends is because usually when people are coming in, they're bothered by something. So they're looking for it to be treated, not necessarily knowing that not necessarily knowing whether or not it can be treated or if that's really what they want. What someone generally is looking for is to understand it, you know, and so Mm -hmm. we're not looking to treat it slash cure it the way we would a malignancy, but we're looking Mm -hmm. to treat it is in a, can we explore this? You know, because I, you know, I've had patients come in with fetishes that they find absurd and they're just so filled with shame and embarrassment by them that they want to crawl out of their skin you know admitting it to themselves let alone to somebody else and when you explore and you understand the history and the context and you know to to what you ladies are saying where you recognize the purpose it's serving and that 
it's helping someone feel pleasure. You know, it's helping someone mm-hmm. feel less inhibited and they feel like they can be themselves in this experience. Well, if it's not harming anybody and it's helping you, then let's let's yeah. take it for what it is. Let's see the purpose it's serving. Right, Absolutely. right. I mean, I'm sure you, yeah, go ahead, Tatiana. No, no, I'm just going to say, I like how I never really put the connection with, when we say, you know, is it something, does it need to be treated? Is it something that can be treated? it always does kind of have that implication that we're going to fix it or we're going to change it or we're going to get rid of it or we're going to like take care of it. Yes. But that that's really not what necessarily, like I never really put, I never really like put the connotation together that treated really does have this implication of fixing or changing something like something that's a, that is, you know, a malignancy that we need to get rid of. Yes. But that really, it's just really understanding the basis for it and then going from there with it. Right. Right, for sure. And I think, I mean, we are getting into semantics, but I also think, you know, part of why we do that is because when you think about, like, when when we describe therapy, I know when I talk about psychotherapy, I look at it as a treatment, mm-hmm. right? And right. so in that case, it is a treatment. But when we look at it through a medical lens, you yes. know, when we think about things being treated, it's eradicate this, cure this, remove mm-hmm. this thing, right? For mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, yeah but, but, and I think really that. Yeah. No, I'm sorry, I keep interrupting you. <laughs> no, it's, it's fine. <laughs> I was just gonna say, I think that that also plays into this. That going back to the stigma, yeah, that it does add to that stigma. Yeah. And if we, you know, when we look at it through that lens, it's like, oh, then there's something wrong with this. Exactly. Yes. Right. And it could be that there's something totally right with it. Right. Mm-hmm. You, mm-hmm. Why are we? You know, maybe if we understand it, then we can keep it, and it, it is something that. Um, again, brings us pleasure and it's totally fine. Yeah. Um, Another topic that that I've wondered about with tech therapy is sexual orientation. Is that something that you discuss in in your line of work? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, you know, it's it's part of one's sexual identity. And if we're going to address identity, then one's orientation will be part of that. But I think nowadays, most often when people are coming in, you know, they're they're coming in saying, I happen to be, you know, if they even disclose that, sometimes they don't, because they're trying to feel out, is it even safe to do this? Mm -hmm. But um, sometimes they come in saying, you know, like, I have a, I believe I may be whatever, fill in the blank, and I'd like to explore it. But oftentimes, people may say, I happen to orient this in this way. But my issue is actually completely unrelated to this. You know, And so that's what, again, that's what we focus on. Sometimes one's orientation contributes to what they want to explore. Sometimes it doesn't, you know, and I think nowadays the, the um, continuum of which people self-identify is so varied, you know, like we're definitely past the gay by lesbian, you know, like we're so mm-hmm, much right. more varied in this. And so, People explore, this is what I'm interested in, the, you know, and it changes over time, you know, and, and I think, you know, for, again, for some people, they, they are looking at safety elements for some people, you know, I'm going to go back to fantasy. Some people may have fantasies around various orientation, various orientations, you know, trying something on. And, and I think what makes fantasy so appealing is that it's not reality, you know, like you can, you can play in fantasy, you can imagine all kinds of things. And, 
you know, one of the things certainly we do in, in treatment is sort of normalize that it doesn't have to be real. It never has to become real. We can, we can play with this in our imagination if we allow ourselves to go there. Absolutely. Can you, because um, we do have listeners, we have listeners who are in the field, we have listeners who are, you know, exploring options of, of wanting to start therapy or, or gaining more knowledge. Can you um, discuss the difference between, or discuss the different sexual orientations for our listeners who may not be aware? As you said, it's kind of definitely grown from just, you know, the standard that we had several years ago to now different different orientations. Can you talk a little bit and, ex- and discuss some of those the different orientations for our listeners? Sure. Sure. I mean, I, um, again, there's, there's so many different ones that I, I, um, I'm hesitant to sort of be very, um, to, to, to go fully into categories because, because they vary. They, they're so, um, they're ever growing, but some, you know, some of the ones that come to mind, you know, so mm-hmm. someone may identify as asexual, people who don't experience sexual attraction to another gender, or they might, you know, there's also a range within that umbrella. So, or aromantic, they experience little romantic attraction, regardless of someone's sex or gender. Um, there is, you know, you know, if we go into bisexual or people who are bi-curious, people who are exploring their sexuality, um, experience romantic attraction to, you know, bi sort of, it goes into two, but it could be not necessarily two, um, where people experience sexual or romantic feelings towards more than one gender. Um, and again, it's bisexual, bi-romantic, there's all different, different, um, different sort of classifications within that. Um, some people will talk about feeling demisexual where they um, are attracted to someone. And again, this is on the asexual spectrum of things. Um, they might experience attraction to someone under specific circumstances, but generally would identify as asexual. Um, you know, people will joke and say, um, you know, people, again, people make up terms. People will say, I'm trisexual, I'll try anything. You know what I mean? Like, so <laughs> there's, yeah. it, there's all kinds yeah. of um, orientation, but obviously, you know, gay, you feel um, attraction to the same gender. And I also, you know, perhaps it makes sense when we think about, when we describe this as to delineate between sex and gender. We, you know, gender is constructed. We construct this socially. Um, when we're talking about gender, we're talking about people who, identify as masculine or feminine versus sex people who um, identify with biological body of a male or a female um you know heterosexual homosexual you know the term is still used um homo meaning same to to describe same uh same gender or similar gender lesbian people who feel an attraction to someone of the same gender um you know, pansexual is a term that we've heard described, um, people who feel attracted regardless of someone's gender identity. Um, again, we can go into pansexual and panromantic. People describe themselves as polysexual. Um, people describe themselves as queer. You know, queer has sort of been a term that's been uh, um, reclaimed by the LGBTQIA plus community. 
um, as someone who does not want to fit into a category um, and find their attraction, you know, regardless of one's sex or gender. Um, You know, someone can romantically identify as questioning. Someone can, you know, I've heard, I've uh, I had someone say to me that they're a sapiosexual and that they're drawn to me based on intellect. You know, I actually hadn't heard of the term before. I had to look it up. But again, wow. this, yeah. So there's again, like this, this varies so much, and it's so, um, you know. And then straight, obviously, is is the sexual orientation that people use to describe um, interest <clears throat> in the opposite gender, but. This, you know, if we recorded this podcast in two or three years from now, <laughs> there'll be more terms. You know what I mean? So, so for, uh, you know, I hope when people listen, they realize that these are broad categories. They are not, they're fluid, you know, and they, they vary over time and, and context. I really appreciate that because mm-hmm. I think that there are so many different categories and there's such fluidity to our sexuality. That's something that I think is it's such a wonderful thing that people are exploring this for themselves. Um, but you made me laugh because when you were talking about LGBTQ, I was explaining this to my mother who, like Jennifer's mother, it, you know, we come from immigrant families. And so these are terms that maybe are not necessarily thrown around very much. But then you just threw me off because you said LGBTQIA+, and I guess I didn't know the last three. So can you explain I, those last I, ones I, for me too? Yeah. You know what I actually wrote down? I wrote down the IA because I was like, okay, I I know LGBTQ plus and I was like, I don't know what the IA is. Yeah. So just for the other people that may not be aware, just to, it's a very basic one too. I know LGBTQ, but could you just explain the whole, uh, the whole alphabet? So. Of course. Yes. <laughs> so um, the... Yes. So the L stands for lesbian. Again, women who are physically, emotionally, and romantically attracted to other women. Excuse me. G stands for gay people who are attracted similarly to men, you know, men attracted to men of the same gender. B stands for bisexual people who are physically, emotionally attracted to more than one sex or gender identity. T stands for transgender. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is people who identify their identity or expression is different than their sex assigned at birth. Um, one of the things that's important to note is, and this, you know, there's within the community, there's there's these um, rifts. And I think, you know, transgender individuals often feel left out from the LGB because mm-hmm. the top three sort of describe orientation versus mm-hmm. key, which describes identity. So it's different. Um, right. The Q stands for queer and questioning. Um, So this is, again, this is uh, individuals who'd fit into this are non-binary individuals who identify as gender fluid, gender queer, gender non-conforming GNC. That's a very common um, term. Um, And, you know, and then Q can also, so queer and questioning is also under the Q. Um, I would stand for intersex. So more and more people are coming out sharing this condition. So these are people born with differences in their sex traits or reproductive anatomy, where Mm -hmm. they might not be born with quote unquote, 100% male or 100% female um, genital, um, genital organs. 
Mm-hmm. And so um, there may be differences in genitalia or hormones, internal or external sex characteristics. Um, the A is for asexual. So again, people who lack sexual attraction. But again, nowadays, A is an umbrella in and of itself. And then the plus is um, intended to represent members of the community who may not be included in the LGBTQIA um, synonym. So it's, we're, you know, it's working toward inclusivity, working on more representation so that we can be more encompassing because, you know, historically there's been times where people feel like, where do I, where do I fit in? You know? Right. 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 And, and what is the name for it or, or how, how to identify it? I, I think, I thank you very much for, for yes. helping me with that. Sure. Because I know that I know. I was like, hmm, I wonder what, what, what everything else means there. Um, <laughs> you know, kind of veering a little bit uh, to a different topic. Sure. Um, how, how, how would you describe sex therapy when it comes to perhaps a traumatized client that's coming in and, and how, if, if intimacy was an issue, how you would help them regain intimacy? Sure. So I think, you know, when, when we hear about trauma, um, trauma can come in big T's and little T's. You know, I've certainly had patients come in and describe experiences that they find traumatic and then they'll share something that is just absolutely horrific. And that to them is just how things were. Um, and then there's other times people come in really, really, um, so fragmented as a result of trauma that it's hard to even piece together where, where things started because everything just feels very jumbled and very dissociated. So Mm -hmm. I think, you know, when it comes to, you know, sex therapy and trauma therapy can be done together, but I don't know that we can really focus on um, exact sex therapy, if I may say so, without really helping someone um, regain safety, focus on safety and, and stabilize. So, so the way, you know, trauma work, I think is long-term work, um, work that really takes a lot of investment and healing, you know, sex therapy. I'm not, I'm, I'm not looking to compare the two, but, but for people who are sort of, um, fairly psychologically healthy and fairly, um, well organized, if I may, from a psychological mm-hmm. perspective, sex therapy doesn't have to last for many years. Some people come in for sex therapy for a couple of sessions, a couple of months, you know, things like that. I think it's different when it comes to trauma. I think trauma takes a lot of time to sort of helping a patient feel a sense of security in a space with a therapist, especially, you know, when it comes to sex therapy with traumatized clients, especially clients who've been sexually traumatized sexuality becomes weaponized and so it becomes Mm -hmm. dissociated from a person and the goal is really to create and establish trust in the relationship with somebody in the body that they possess in the space you know Mm -hmm. and over time they start to recollect identify sort of the impact of the trauma and learn to understand what intimacy is like for oneself what intimacy is like with a therapist, and then what intimacy is like with another person. Um, I've done presentations on, you know, on sexual issues with trauma survivors and working with 
sort of how can we help someone with intimacy after sexual assault? And, you know, I won't go into the details here, but if you look at symptoms of PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder, all of those, every single element of those symptoms can wreak havoc on sexual functioning, you know, whether that means experiencing um, flashbacks, intrusive thoughts, um, or, you know, like body, you know, like your body just physiologically starts to react in ways that you don't want it to react. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, you know, like it, it like becomes reactive or aroused. It's working on all of those all of those areas to see how can we calm, how can we soothe, how can we feel like this is manageable before we start to address, you know, sexual, um, sexual needs and, and interests. Because, you know, again, you know, when it comes to, when it comes to sex with, with trauma, it's, it's usually that sex is used in a way to harm. And so, mm-hmm. Trump, you know, survivors feel as though they um, sex can't be a healthy thing that someone wants and enjoys. Sex is done onto somebody or sex is done as a transaction in reference to something that is not consensual. And so it's, you know, it's a nuanced thing to untangle. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. I think that it's multi-layered when working with trauma. And definitely regaining a sense of self and a sense of safety, um, I think would be very important. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I want, I know um, you've talked to us a little bit about the therapy process and your role as a therapist. Um, I know you've also taught some sexual education courses to young people. Can you tell us um, what your coursework was about and what might be some of the key issues that all young people need to know about? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I actually taught sex ed to high schoolers. Um, and, you know, I developed curriculum based on existing sources out there. One of the ones I'll mention that's very well known is OWL, which stands for Our Whole Lives. It's a very good curriculum. Um, but there's a lot of resources out there as well. And so when I taught this, Um, It was a 16-week course um, for high school kids. I had two classes, two for um, freshmen and sophomores, and then two for juniors and seniors. And, you know, I focus very much on anatomy because I think uh, not only teenagers, uh, adults. Yes, um, that is true. (laughs) You know, don't, don't know anatomy and how it works. Um, And also sort of body image and relationships uh, the values and the, you know, the, the messages that we get from all of our, whether they're proximal or distal influences on us, sort of where that comes from. We talked about communication, sexual behavior. Um, I also covered, you know, sexually transmitted infections and sexual violations, harassment, sort of things in the media. I actually, you know, earlier when we were all talking and we were mentioning TikTok, I think to myself, you know, I wonder what this would look like today because it's been a couple of years since I've taught it. But I think, you know, the influence of media on sexual expression, on sexual boundaries, on on violations on you know all of that sort of is so um I don't want to say tainted but that's the word that comes to mind especially in the pandemic you know Mm -hmm. like 
everything is veiled through a screen. Right. Um, so, so it's really, it, you know, it would look different today, but, but to answer your question, those were kind of the, that was sort of what the coursework was. And the thing that I, um, reiterated then and would reiterate now for things that young people need to know is that you know sexuality is natural um and sexual autonomy is important just like you know for when we become when we grow and we individuate you know we want to understand that we're sexual beings outside of the relation to another that's something that is really important and it's worth knowing sort of and exploring one's sexuality to see what your interests are, to see what your dislikes are. Because if you don't know this about yourself, how can you share that with somebody? How can they know this about you if you're not necessarily sure? I think that's fantastic advice. I think that's a great advice for maybe adults that don't even know that. You know what I mean? Like, of course. Not just even as a young person. I think the only other thing that I add that I've told my the young people in my life is, don't ask your friends, ask me, because I will tell you, you know, or at least lead you to the right direction, you know, if I don't know the answer. Yes. Um, you know, one of the things, like I said, at the top of this interview was that the topic of sex therapy was so well received by yes. a lot of people in our audience. We had a lot of questions. So if you don't mind, um, we had some listener questions that we were going to go through, um, if you don't mind answering some of them as best as you can. Of um, course. So starting I, off is oh, go ahead please well no I was just gonna say I don't mind answering I'm happy to answer the one thing that I will add based on what you just said with um sort of don't you know don't look here come here one of the things that I want to just add is today's sex educator is porn I mean literally this right. is where people get right. their information and it's such a disservice because not only is that 100% not real but you're not learning how to actually, you know, like I, I will joke and I will say, you know, you don't watch porn to learn how to connect with people, you know, like you watch <laughs> porn for a very specific purpose. And, and right. it's, I mean, it really can be so damaging because people start to develop these completely unrealistic expectations for what, what an experience is supposed to be like. And then it really takes a lot of unlearning and relearning sort of how does this go? Again, I put porn in sort of the fantasy land. This is not reality. And we need to, we need to sort of. I think, I think a lot of people need to, thank you for bringing that up because I think one of the, our form, our past guests, um, she sees a lot of adolescent and young men and the expectation of sex and what is supposed to happen with their partners is completely unrealistic based yes. on the fact that there's been so much pornography that they've uh, viewed. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, having to basically relearn that that is not really, that's all make-believe. Yes. And not necessarily a terrible thing, but not something that we base. At. Like, you know, it's like if I base it, this is how I'm going to date myself. If I base my life on pretty woman, someone's going to come in a limo <laughs> and give me some roast. That's a very unrealistic version of romance yes. to me, but it's very yes. nice for a movie, right? For but, sure. So I, mm -hmm. I thank you for saying that because I feel like it's de definitely a different topic for a different day, but the influence of pornography on our young people um, not the best place to look yes, for information. That's right. 
Um, But so so to get to some of our listener questions, the first thing we had was, uh, how do you gain a client's trust? I would have a hard time talking about SEX. I don't think they could even (laughs) say it. I would have a hard time talking about SEX with a stranger. So how do you, how do you do that? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. And again, right to the point of if we can't pronounce SEX and clearly we've got our own <laughs> right discomfort or insecurity totally. or something, and that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. Um, but you start slow, you know, sex therapy is not unlike any other psychotherapeutic relationship. When we meet someone who's a stranger, we're going to disclose as much or as little as we feel like we can. Um, and, we kind of model that kind of an interaction. I know for me as a therapist, you know, I, I say the longer I am a therapist, the less disclosing I am. And what mm-hmm. I want people to learn about me is not the details and the data of my life, but how I relate. And I think the same is true for patients. Patients who've been in treatment for a long time realize that it's not necessarily the nitty gritty details that they share. It's how do they relate? How do they interact with people? What are their interpersonals? And how does that, you know, how does what they say influence what someone else says? And over time, that trust starts to build if someone feels a sense of safety and comfort. But it's a slow process. You know, I, when it comes to sex therapy, especially with trauma survivors, but any therapy when it comes to a trusting relationship, I don't believe in pushing. I believe Mm -hmm. that when we push, we get resistance. So we acknowledge the discomfort. You know, again, I've seen so many people blush in my office and just, you know, just get sick explaining what it is that they're trying to share or just filled with embarrassment. And my job is to model that I talk about this stuff. You know, I've met Mm -hmm. therapists who just don't talk sex. For me, the ability to say, you know, Tell me about your difficulties with orgasm. Tell me, you know, you know, after you had surgery and something happened with your urethra, how did that affect your clitoris? You know, things like that. The ability to just kind of speak comfortably and openly about something really, really um, matters because people start mm-hmm. to see, wow, you're you didn't flinch a bit when you said that. You're you're talking about something that matters to me. Of course, it matters, and not only does it matters, but doesn't matter, but it's so valuable to you. You sought out treatment to understand this. So of course I'm going to honor that. That's wonderful. Absolutely. It is. It is. Which kind of, it kind of a little bit ties into our next listener question, which somebody had asked, is there anything that a client has brought up that was too much even for you or that made you blessed or that you had some sort of reaction to? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, typically when people ask that question, they're thinking, about something that may be so, you know, sexually out there Mm -hmm. that it would, that it would make me, you know, that it would just seem outrageous. And I have not had that happen. What I have had happen is people tell me things that, um, that are so traumatic, either that they have perpetuated onto somebody or that has been inflicted onto them. Those are the things that make me that, that will sometimes horrify me. Um, And they can be of sexual nature. So it's not, you know, it's not blushing in the sense of, 
I don't even I don't even know if I would call it blushing. You know, I think it's more mm-hmm. it's more horror. Um, you know, there's times where patients will bring up um, sexual interest in in their therapist, in me as they're treating me. And we use that as part of the treatment. I mean, that to me is not something that makes me blush. That's something that you sit with and explore what's going on for a patient that they're having this response. Who am I to them in this moment? Am I in fact Asia the therapist or is this, you know, mimicking something else? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I believe in containment of, you know, you as a therapist, you're, this isn't, we're not there for your self-gratification. You know, I think we gratify ourselves from the treatment, but the sole purpose there is treating, we're treating our patients. So that's what we're there for. So when things start to, and this actually brings me to a good point, when things start to become shared that are provocative, when someone's trying to get a rise out of you, the the dynamic of the treatment is shifting, you know, and it's mm-hmm. something to pay attention to because that's not what the purpose of the treatment is. I really, I really think that's important that you brought that up because I think that as a, in my younger, I'm getting older. So I have <laughs> what you might call a seasoned, I always think seasoned is black and white, salt and pepper, but seasoned therapist. Um, yeah. And I just remember being a younger therapist and having this, you know, moments where, um, those feelings were put upon me, you know what I mean? Yes. And, and, and going straight to supervision and having incredible supervisors that absolutely had me address this immediately. And, and because there's a part of me that I thought, am I just making this up? I'm feeling this. And, and it goes back to something you had said in the pre-interview that we had talked about earlier was going with your gut mm-hmm. and, and, and testing mm-hmm. it out and checking it out. And I think that is so important uh, especially in, in, in your work, of course, specifically because you're talking about sex, but yes. also just period in therapy, because you're going to have feelings that are elicited between yourself and, and, and your client. And you can't ignore this. You yes. have to discuss mm-hmm. this because this is also replicated in the real world. Right. I mean, so it's not, this is just a model of what's happening everywhere else. Um, Absolutely. I appreciate you saying that. Of um, course. Go, go ahead. Yeah. Well, and I was just going to say, you know, mm-hmm. two things. One is it's a wonderful thing that you felt comfortable enough to bring this to supervision. I know mm-hmm. when I was very, very green, mm-hmm. I wouldn't dare bring this up because I was mortified, you mm-hmm. know, and that they were able to listen to it because I've had patients, I, I'm sorry, I've had other colleagues say to me, I've tried to bring this up in supervision and I can't because I get shut down or I oh, no. feel shame like something's wrong with me. You know what I mean? So, so the fact that you could do this is really um, exemplary. And that's exactly I, the yeah. Kind of, yeah. I, I will say that Jennifer and I, we, we went to a lot of similar places. We really did mm-hmm. have uh, top-notch supervision that I felt yes. uh, lasted for th- my entire career. And, and I, I know that a lot of therapists don't always have that. So I always say, again, trust your gut and seek it out because yeah. it is something that happens. And I think that if I I, if I carry this with me, I would probably be still a problem that I would be experiencing as a therapist with my clients, um, yes. you know, and, and not addressing it and then ultimately not helping anybody, you know yes. what I mean? not helping anybody mm-hmm. there. Absolutely. Um, what que- a question that one of our viewers or listeners, sorry, um, had asked was, do you see couples more or individuals more? Yeah. Um, so I see both. I, this has changed for me personally in the pandemic. Um, I think on screens, 
it is more difficult to be able to pick up on all of the nuances in a couple. You know, Mm -hmm. one of the things that I really appreciate about couples work and individual work, but is the fact that there's, you know, whether or not partners are holding hands, whether or not a partner is shaking their leg, like all those nonverbals that you can see when you're sitting in the room with someone get missed when it comes to um, a screen. And so for me personally, I have seen less patients in the pandemic, but I do see both, you know, I do see both. And um, initially I started out with more individuals, but it depends. Again, you know, some people come in because they feel like they want, you know, they're single, they want to address a sexual problem, you know, like they experience sexual pain or they, I've had patients who, you know, are athletes and perhaps injure, you know, their pelvic region. Um, and so, you know, we treat them in the CDC what we can do. And then you, you see people who are in relationship and they feel like something's going on in the coupleship. And so then we, we treat the couple. Sometimes we treat a couple individually. You know what I mean? Where mm-hmm, you're mm-hmm, treating mm-hmm. one person, but you're actually treating both. Um, but yeah, so it varies. But but I think something that um, that was said earlier, which is, um, you know, these sexual issues are relational issues and it's not in a vacuum. I very, very much mm-hmm. believe that when someone presents with sexual issues, we need to look at history. We need to look at other other dynamics and and what clues they give us to understand um, the sexual functioning concerns. Yes. Thank you for, for talking about that. So another um, listener question that we have is, is erectile dysfunction normal? How do I know if I have this? And could it be performance anxiety? Sure. Good question. So um, the word normal is very funny because it's subjective. You know, uh, certainly many people come into a therapist's office and say, am I normal? (laughs) Yeah. Right. So I don't know what the listener's definition of normal is. So I, I don't know. But what I can say is, you know, subjectivity matters. Um, And so erectile dysfunction, if we look at it from a, from the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, if we look at it sort of from a very clinical book of of definition, it talks about being unable to have an insufficient erection for intercourse 75 to 100% of the time of attempts in, in a period of six months. But again, when we're talking about experiences, are we necessarily having intercourse? When we are having an insufficient erection, what does insufficient mean, right? I think oftentimes erections are so equalized with what it means to be masculine. And Mm -hmm. so then when Mm -hmm. someone has any difficulties with their penis or with an erection, they feel like there's something wrong with them. Um, You know, and so the second part of that question was, Could it be performance anxiety? Of course it could. You know, how often do, um, how often do our bodies function in response to our environment all the time? Mm -hmm. 
you know? And so if you're fighting with a partner, if you're anxious about being with somebody, if you're in your head thinking you better get, you know, you better get it up. You better not screw this up. I mean, the chances of your penis saying, okay, buddy, I'm going to work with you. Not yeah. a high, right? Like, right. Mm-hmm. Versus let's just try this, see what happens, lower the pressure, you know, um, and go from there. And, and even what you had said earlier about, you know, using pornography as your instructor, you know, what, I mean, you're just going up against, you know, like people that are, this is their profession, you know what I mean? So and, and thinking that this is a normal part, or also thinking that this, this is normal, and I'm not having this experience. And it could also be so damaging to someone's psyche, mm-hmm. you yes. know, when it comes to how they're performing or how they relate to somebody else, that lack of actual intimacy. Absolutely. Um, I could see how that could play a role there too. Like, you know, how much, I guess I would, I mean, you know, with, I'm not a sex therapist, but I would yeah. want to know how much pornography people are consuming. Of you course. know what I mean? Like, of course. Because you know, how it would impact. And I guess the follow-up question of that was, um, and tell me if I'm saying this wrong. What is vaginismus? I don't yeah. know if I said that correctly. You did. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Good. Good. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. Um, so vaginismus is actually an older term. Um, okay. It is a term that um, is intended to uh, understand what are uh, what are muscle spasms. So what are muscle sp- spasms in the vagina? Um, and then dyspareunia is the term that previously used to be used to describe painful intercourse those terms because those are you know everything is not so black and white and sometimes muscle spasms happen when someone is experiencing pain what we now group these um, conditions in is called genitopelvic pain slash penetration disorder so it's difficulties with penetration fear and anxiety around experiencing penetration, vulvovaginal or pelvic pain, um, or tensing and tightening of the pelvic floor. So this is, you know, these conditions are something is, I'm having a certain reaction to um, whether something is being inserted. um, And that, again, it does not have to be um, a penis. It can be anything, right? Mm -hmm. or I am experiencing pain in that region or tensing and tightening where it just doesn't feel, um, it doesn't feel like it should. Um, and so the way vaginismus or again, um, genital pelvic pain and penetration disorder, the way this is treated oftentimes in addition to therapy is multidimensional. There's pelvic floor physical therapists who will see what they can do when it comes to exercises. So something that um, people will sometimes use are dilators and they can start very small little ones that look like tampons all the way up in size and practice insertion to see what it feels like. Obviously Mm -hmm. sex therapy um, where people are performing tasks to see, you know, what, what can I tolerate? What feels manageable for me? Um, Some people will, get pain management for these kinds of conditions. Um, It's, you know, there's in, in extreme circumstances, there's times where people will give injections like Botox kinds of injections. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, To relax muscles. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So that, um, so that someone can feel, um, you know, they can tolerate the experience better, but, Again, you know, I am, I, 
I'm leery of labels because, mm-hmm. you know, and diagnoses, you know what I mean? Like, you know, the, the, the listener before said, how do I know if I have this? It's subjective. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can look at medical, we can look at medical diagnoses and, and how someone would, would classify this, but for what purpose, you know, like, mm-hmm. are you looking for a certain kind of treatment? Are you looking for medication or are you looking to figure out if you're quote unquote normal or not? Right. Like what is, mm-hmm. what is the function of you asking that question? Because I think, you know, everything influences us, whether it's a condition or an environment and it's figuring out, can I work with this? Do I want to work with this? How do I best manage this? You know, and shifting the focus to, I want to feel fulfilled. I want to feel satisfied versus, you know, like uh, the sexual response cycle. I want to have an orgasm, right? Like if, if your focus is so narrow, probably you're going to feel quote unquote abnormal when something isn't going based on the certain, you know, the certain linear model that you believe you should be following. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite parts of kind of doing our podcast and being able to talk to all these different es- experts is really getting to hear and get the sense of passion that people have for their line of work and for what they do. Um, And so what, you know, one of the questions that we kind of always will ask our our guest is what do you like most about your work? Um, That's a great question. Um, There's so much I like about my work. Um, I, um, I love this work. I think, you know, as a, as a sex therapist, but generally as a therapist, being able to see someone grow, being able to see someone experience it, insight and like find pleasure and find happiness, um, feel less inhibited and just sort of feel a sense of freedom. You know, when someone, when someone, you know, like I remember when I stopped seeing the patient who had a fetish and I received a letter from that patient just saying how they feel so much freer in who they are. You know, like, that's the stuff that, you know, we all have hard days, but then you read something like that or you get something like that and you're like, this is why I do what I do. Totally. <laughs> totally. Um, you know, and so I think for me, when when I see people accept their their sexual selves when they when they see that it's healthy and it's beautiful and it doesn't have to be anything we shame and it can I mean it's it's such a sacred relationship that you can have with oneself I think that's really that's what makes me glow that's what gives me joy I love that. I love that. I, I really do. do because I think that it, sex is good. I mean, that's why yes. I think everyone's so interested in talking about it. With <laughs> us, you know, it's because it's a good thing. And I think to to have people leave your office feeling lighter and and more fulfilled in their lives and in themselves and themselves is amazing. And mm-hmm. um and in our last question that we always ask all uh, our experts um, is if you could, you know, you know, just to back up. Again, we started this podcast to demystify therapy and and, and what goes on in in a psychologist's office and what is all of that about. But if you could demystify something 
um, about sex therapy, what, what would that be? What would you want to demystify for our listeners? I think I would demystify that it's um, foreign. I would demystify that it's um, unattainable. And I would demystify that it's um, that it's that it's something that it isn't. Do you know what I mean? Like I would demystify mm-hmm. just like I, you know, I'll tell people this isn't rocket science. You know, when we when we have a headache, we see a head specialist. You know, mm-hmm. like we mm-hmm. when you have a sexual concern, you come see a sex therapist and you are not broken and you're not abnormal and you're not um, damaged for having sexual concerns or for seeking therapy for it. As a matter of fact, you have enough insight to recognize that this is important to you and it's valuable to you and you're seeking out the care that you need so that you can be more fulfilled and so more power to you. I love that. I, I, I love, love that, that. <laughs> right? Because it's like, and, and you're exactly right. Because people do feel like I'm so broken. And, and I, but you're saying, you know, this, if, look, if no one was having these issues, your, you know, network of Chicago uh, sex therapists, you know, would not be growing. You know what I mean? Like right. you yes. would not be having all these people, you know, d- getting certified and doing this. It's because there obviously is something out there and yes. there's mm-hmm. people that are there to help. And I think that's a really, it's really lovely. Um, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've definitely taken, um, a lot of your time and we've absolutely, I've absolutely enjoyed, loved having you on and, and just learning so much about the field and about what you do and, and just even kind of erasing some of those like stereotypes that go along with it and, and just kind of like increasing my curiosity even more now. Yes. So thank you so much of for being course. a part of our show today. Yes. Thank, thank you, you for having me. Of course. This is really wonderful. So we will be posting um, some information about you and your practice and just different um, places that people could find information about for, for certified sex therapists so they can actually find somebody that, that is a quality therapist. Yes. Um, we'll be posting that our, on our Instagram account, which is at therapy underscore podcast underscore. And we'll also be posting more information, like I said, about you and your practice and just a couple of highlights of, of, of the show. But for now, thank you so much for being with us. And we hope you have a great night. Thank you so much. Yes, thank Take you. Take care. Okay. All right. Take care. Both Bye-bye. 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 Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you listen to good podcasts. And keep up with episode updates on Instagram at therapy underscore podcast underscore. There, you can send us messages on topics you'd like to hear about or anything that comes to mind. Bye for now. Thank you.